0: Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Let's start out by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Mary, Tony, Sarah, Rachel, Philip, Jessica, Elisa, Lee, Kelly, Brandy, Claudia, Chantal, Christy, Patricia, Ashley, Chris, Jay, Bloom, MN, Jacqueline, Michael, Elizabeth, Natalie, Sasha, and Heather.
1: Thank you, guys. Thank you. So we are doing part two of Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker. Just a little recap of where we left off last week. Things were getting a little too hot for Ramirez in L.A. Not only was every law enforcement agent now looking for him, there was a huge reward for info that would lead to his capture, so all of his dirtbag friends were also eyeing him suspiciously. Things weren't going well down at the bus depot for Ramirez. (laughs) He was so paranoid, like always looking over his shoulder. So he stole a Mercedes and took off for San Francisco, getting a cheap room at the Bristol Hotel in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Now, a few people wrote in to tell us that the Tenderloin is still not the best area. We had speculated it had been Gentrified. gentrified or fixed up. And like really pricey. It's the last bad area of San Francisco. I guess it's it's
0: you know it's what? surprising. I, I will say that before quarantine, when I would go home for the holidays, I would be whenever I would see some like crazy shit happening. Yeah, out on the city streets, I would get a little nostalgic for my youth. Like ah, <laughs> it's not entirely gentrified tech bros here.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that is nice. So. The moment he arrived in San Francisco, he was back to his old ways. He was going to a local porn or triple X shop, they called it, to watch porn in those little booths where you could jerk off.
0: Have you never watched been in one them of those? at the
1: stores? You never went in one of those? No. Wait, this isn't a video store. This is like. No, it's like a triple X shop, so they have it all. So, you could get videos, I guess, or buy them or buy other stuff. Is, and then they have these little booths that are kind of like where you take the three photos in a row and you guys are making goofy faces. You know, like a photo booth. Is that like the thing in the Madonna video for Open Your Heart? Yeah, Where you're sitting in the little, and the screen goes up? <laughs> no, off? but it's not a live. I think they might have live performances, but oftentimes it's just videos. Okay. So, you go in there, you can click around some videos and, and jerk off in one of these booths. God, people had it so rough before the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. Now, he would also get high, and he ended his first day in San Francisco by mugging an elderly woman, which got him so worked up and in his mind pleased Satan so much that he went and robbed a home in the Marina area of San Francisco that same night. It didn't take long for Ramirez to realize, hey, there's no reason to stop killing just because I'm not in LA, so he made a plan to do just that. On August 18th, 1985, he entered the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot Peter while he was sleeping. He is age 66, by the way. He then beat and sexually assaulted Barbara, who was 62, before shooting her in the head and leaving her for dead. At the crime scene, Ramirez used lipstick to scrawl a pentagram and the phrase, Jack the Knife, on the bedroom wall. Barbara would survive the attack, by the way. After he attacked these uh, people, he hired a sex worker and paid her to let him have sex with her feet again. That was his thing. Wait, did he just rub his dick in between feet? I don't her know. Feet? Like in my head, this is how it works. You put your feet together. I have very high arches. So if I did that, I'd have a hole. It would still be quite large yeah. hole, but maybe that's what they do. If you have sex with your feet or you want to fuck feet, tell us how you do it.
0: I also would like to note that... Or maybe don't. I I would like to note, Desi, you do have really nice feet. Really? I've seen Desi's feet. I also have high arches. Oh. I just think that we both have the type of feet that foot
1: fetishists would be into. Oh, I I have zero knowledge about that fetish, like I don't know like what's popular because I also know some people want them to be stinky and gross. Right. Like it's not always about looking nice. But right. I guess it's everything. Uh yeah, I would imagine I could see the high arches being like uh appealing to certain guys. Uh, and
0: like I'm just speculating. I'm like, oh maybe they want some like curvy
1: ass looking feet. And you have curvy ass feet. My feet are curvy because I yeah. have a very high arch, which right. is why I can hardly wear any shoes. Same. <laughs> Or I have to buy like a size bigger or something sometimes. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of annoying. I have extremely
0: narrow feet, so I have a hard time finding shoes.
1: I think my feet are average. Look, we're turning some people on right now. (laughs) Mine aren't narrow or like Hobbit. (laughs) like What is that, like extra wide shoes or something? Yeah, they have extra wide. I think mine are just in, in between. Anyway... Uh, Carrillo and Salerno heard about the killings the next day down in LA and were initially worried that maybe it was a copycat killer cause they didn't know where he was. But once they found out that the shell casings had the same red circle, um, that the ones in LA had, they knew it was their guy. Also, they found another Avia shoe print on the scene. Now, they flew up to San Francisco ASAP. Unfortunately, a reporter who was covering the case down in LA was also on the plane, and seeing them on that flight quickly confirmed her theory that the stalker had moved north. They went up there and worked with the San Francisco detectives who were um, on that murder case, and they basically gave them every bit of information they had, unlike all the dicks in L.A. who weren't giving them jack shit. They were very open with the San Francisco detectives. Unfortunately, that information that they gave the San Francisco detectives moved quickly up the chain of command all the way to Mayor Diane Feinstein. Oh Is boy. it Feinstein or Feinstein? Feinstein. Okay. Uh, so she set up a press conference immediately telling the city of San Francisco what was up, In that press conference, she divulged key evidence, including the ballistic information about the red circle and the Avia sneaker footprints that had been left behind. Now, we've all like, followed a lot of true crime cases in our lifetime, I'm assuming everyone listening has. You can tell instantly why that might be a bad idea to do, because now uh, he knew what evidence they had on him that would be kind of like, aha, we gotcha.
0: And evidence. It, and it also uh puts the case at risk because you might have people coming forward giving a false confession.
1: Oh right. There's just they always like keep information private I for a think. reason. For a reason. So Obviously, everyone's fucking livid about this. They know the killer is following um, the media coverage of his case because he had done something on a previous, um, or some, I can't remember how they knew. Um, but obviously, he probably is. So she has given away crucial forensic evidence. She gets a lot of shit for this, rightly so. And yeah. to this day, I think people are still like, God, you dumb bitch. Like- <laughs> Why'd you do that? But like there was really no reason for her to do it. It was just so insane. She was just running her
0: fucking mouth in that press conference. And just the moment you... Because you got to see a clip of it in the docuseries yes. on Netflix.
1: And you could probably see the whole thing somewhere too yeah. online.
0: True dumb bitch moment. Yeah,
1: very dumb. Now, obviously, Ramirez was watching this press conference, and he went that night to the Golden Gate Bridge and dropped his 11 Avia sneakers off of them. So that that evidence is gone. Now, this couldn't have been good
0: press for Avia, the shoe company.
1: (laughs) Nobody wants to
0: wear a serial killer
1: shoe. I don't know that they were that cool to begin with, quite honestly. But as I mentioned in the last episode... He was the only one with that size and that shoe in LA area. So it was a pretty uh, damning uh, piece of evidence. They were ugly shoes too. I've seen them. They were like white. No, they were black. Oh, they were black. They were okay. maybe the ones I saw were white. So they were just black, but they were plain. Yeah. Like, like what those white ones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can't remember. Uh, But yeah, they're gone. And he remained in San Francisco for a few more days before he headed back to Los Angeles, basically because San Francisco is kind of a small town. It's a very small city. It's a small city. And obviously, as we talked about last episode, L.A. gave much more cover because it's so sprawling uh, and you could just get on the freeway and be somewhere really far in 30 minutes if there's no traffic. (laughs) (laughs) So when he goes back to L.A., he sets up in Chinatown this time instead of his downtown L.A. area by the bus depot. It's still kind of downtown LA, but a little bit more on the outskirts. He made his home there. He immediately stole a new car and went back to hunting, this time driving his furthest distance, 76 miles south of Los Angeles uh, to a town called Mission Viejo. That night, he arrived at the home of James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation to Rosarito Beach in Mexico with his um, family. His 13-year-old son, who was named James Romero III, was still awake around midnight. Uh, I got this account from James Romero Jr., an LA Magazine article. It's actually when I was looking up close calls last week, I came across this article about his close call. So that's how I I was like, oh, that's good. I'll save that for next week. So at some point, 13-year-old James goes out to the camper to get a pillow he had left inside, but the camper was locked. While he was outside, he heard some crunching footsteps on this gravel path that was on the side of the house. He assumed it was an animal and went inside to the garage to work on his mini bike. It was then while he was crouched by his bike that he heard footsteps coming down the gravel path again in the backyard. They came from the top side of the yard and then stopped. He held his breath. He knew at that point that it was not an animal. And the only thing between him and the person outside at this point now was a ventilation grate that was in the garage (gasps) wall. (laughs) Can you imagine? Oh, my God. He knew that the person was standing on the other side of the wall looking for him that person he knew had was the one watching him from the backyard in the shadows when he went out to get to the camper whoever it was waited and then followed james around the side of the house to see where he had gone now at this point it's late at night the street is empty and dark and the only light is in the garage oh. <laughs> So there's like one door that had a glass pane in the top half. So he was like, and he can look inside here, but I can't see anything. That was also the door that he had to use to go to the kitchen door. So the garage was like attached, but the doors were kind of like, you know, like not connected. Uh, so he knew that if Richard or whoever was out there, found that door, he would be trapped inside the garage with no escape. So he basically had no choice but to run to that door and get into the kitchen as fast as possible. He did it. Oh my God. So he ran there, got inside, ran down the hallway to his bedroom and looked at his bedroom window. He saw Richard Ramirez walking in front of his bedroom window, right like outside of his window. At that point, um... They had had prowlers in the neighborhood. So that's like what he thought was happening at this point. He went back to the garage for some reason and saw him walking back to his car and described him as being tall, dressed mostly in black. And he saw him go into an orange Toyota hatchback that had a chrome roof rack. The car was facing downhill and he kind of did a U-turn and went back into the neighborhood. Now, he also got a partial license plate by watching this car like go away, obviously. His dad finally wakes up. He tells him what happened. They call the OC Sheriff's Department to report this prowler had been back in the neighborhood. All the while, Ramirez is moving on to a new house in Mission Viejo just in the same neighborhood and finding <sighs> new victims. After so the-
0: Richard Ramirez just decided, uh, I'm not going to pick this house.
1: Yeah, because I don't think he wanted someone to be awake. He oh. liked getting them when they were like uh, sleeping. Sleep, right. So he, you know, that was like not his MO. And I think when he realized someone was up, he just bailed. Uh, that is so scary. Really scary. So after this encounter at the Romero house, he breaks into the house of a man named Bill Carnes, who is 30 years old, who was living with his fiance, Inez Erickson. Inez, is that how you say it? uh, who was 29, he gets in through their open back door. Now he finds the couple sleeping in their bedroom and he shoots Carnes into the head basically point blank three times. He then tells the woman that he was the night stalker. This is the first time he's told someone that Can you imagine someone saying that to you? That must have been so awful. He then asks her to swear she loves Satan. He beats her up pretty bad, and then he ties her up with some neckties. He steals a bunch of shit, and then he drags her to another room and rapes her. He demands more cash, more jewelry, and makes her swear on Satan that there was no more. Before leaving, he tells her, tell them the Night Stalker was here. Now, she manages to untie herself and get help from a neighbor. Um, Her fiancé survives his injuries, so he somehow miraculously survives. After three gunshot wounds. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. Um, So detectives now are very interested in what happened at Romero's house because now it seems quite connected to what just happened, you know, very, very close. So they go back to his house at 6 a.m., And take him down to the police station to be formally interviewed. Uh, So (laughs) at this point, he still thinks it's about the prowler. Like the family's like, wow, they're really taking this prowler seriously. Like they have no idea what it's about. He leads them uh, to the areas where the prowler had been and they find a shoe print. Only when he returned home did he found out, find out that the night stalker, stalker had attacked another couple in their oh. neighborhood. So that's when they kind of put everything together. Now, Erickson, the woman who was attacked, gave a detailed description of her assailant to investigators. The stolen car that um, James Romero third um, had described was found abandoned at Wilshire Center in Los Angeles, and they actually drove him up there to positively ID it, and he did. Now, the killer had thoroughly wiped down the car to get rid of fingerprints, but Orange County technicians tried a new method developed in Tokyo that allowed technicians to fix otherwise invisible prints with super glue fumes. So a technician had to come down and get this do this process that they didn't really know how to or had never used before to find one print on the back of the rear view mirror. By the time the car's owner had been identified, his prints were excluded. Um, This print was likely belonged to the Night Stalker. So they took that single print and they put it through like their computers, (laughs) whatever they do. It's like a very, back then it was like a very time consuming process. They had a hundred prints in the database that were similar to the one found in the Toyota. And they had to go through a comparison of every single one. So they, they ruled out 99 and then they had a conclusive match. The driver of the orange Toyota was a 25-year-old drifter by the name of Richard Ramirez. He had a long rap sheet that included arrests for traffic, illegal drug violations. Uh, so they had a mugshot on on record. So they were finally ever able to like have a real picture and not just those crappy uh, drawings that we posted,
0: right? Which that just don't look like him. They really do look like Lou Reed.
1: Yeah, it's like a it's like Lou, an alt Lou Reed where it's like he became a beach bomb or something yeah <laughs> like he, didn't, he wasn't cool or something yeah uh so at the same time the daughter of one of his like robber friends a man named jesse perez she also calls in a tip about um ramirez i think in the last episode i mentioned someone were considering turning him in well the daughter finally was like i'm gonna do it if you don't dad so the police were like yep this is the second Richard Ramirez, like it kind of solidified the fingerprint evidence. So everything was really caving in on him. Police did go back and forth on what their best move would be and ultimately decided to show his face to the public. So they held a press conference. They released the mugshot of Ramirez on December 12th. Oh, it was from December 12th, 1984. And the Night Stalker finally had a face for the public. At the police press conference, it was announced, we know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. But Ramirez did try to hide. On August 30th, 1985, he took a bus to Tucson, Arizona, to visit one of his brothers. He, at this point, is unaware that he is the lead story of every major newspaper and television program across the country, but especially in California. Like, he's literally story one. Right, For some reason, the visit with his brother doesn't really work out, and he returns almost immediately back to Los Angeles on August 31st. He walks past police officers who are staking out the bus terminal, looking to catch him leaving LA, but they're only by the outbound buses and not the incoming buses. So he manages to walk right past the cops who are there to catch him at this bus terminal. He went to nearby East LA and into a convenience store. It was in this convenience store that he heard a group of elderly Mexican women fearfully identifying him as El Matador, the killer. (gasps) He then sees his face on the front pages of a newspaper that are like filled on every rack, you know, at the convenience store, they're like right up front usually. And he flees the store in a panic. He runs across the Santa Ana freeway and hops on a bus where everyone immediately recognizes him and starts like saying it's him, it's him, it's I'm, him. I mean, this is so cinematic. It's crazy. When I was reading it, like I didn't realize how many confrontations he had, but everyone literally knew who he was. <laughs> he hops off the bus immediately and is again recognized by three teenagers on the street who began to follow him and run after him. He yells that he has a gun. And he'll shoot them if they don't stop following him. And he's just desperately at this point looking for a car to carjack, basically. Everywhere he goes, people are yelling at him. All these people are also calling the police. Helicopters are now circling this East LA neighborhood that he's running in. He attempts to carjack a woman finally, but is chased away by bystanders who continue to pursue him after he runs off. After hopping over several fe- several fences, once even being hit with some barbecue tools. <laughs> of course, I had to include that. It's <laughs> like that's like he had a barbecue. I just picture him like flipping a burger and being like, "Hey, did someone get him with that wire brush?" seriously the cleaner, <laughs> the one that cleans the grill. Yeah, that would hurt. That would really hurt. That's actually a great weapon. Uh, so he's, you know, he attempts two more carjackings. The last one is a woman who's like right in front of her house. She starts screaming, al Matador, El Matador. Her husband comes out and sees his wife being carjacked basically and obviously runs right over with a friend of his. Now I want to point out that this is a very Mexican-American neighborhood and these residents were particularly aware of this case because of Robert's heritage, I'm sorry, Richard's heritage. And they were particularly pissed at him. Cause they're like, uh, we're not <laughs> like, don't tie us to him. Like right. we're just good, hardworking people living in America. You know what I mean? Like they had like a particular beef with him. Uh, and also I think the Satanism freaked them out. Cause it's like a very Catholic area. So they're very religious. And I think that he just fucking scared them. They were just particularly fucked up about him. Like right. they wanted to get this guy. So more important, more people joined the chase. One woman said she saw him run by and he was hissing and spitting at his chasers and sticking his tongue out serp- serpent like. So he's like acting like a fool as well. <laughs> like he's just like trying to be scary, but it's like he looks pathetic at this point, in my opinion. Yeah. Now people are coming out of their homes with bats and clubs, mm-hmm. going Ray Donovan on him. Like they're chasing him with bats and clubs as well. I love these people. This must you can you even imagine the adrenaline that must have been going through you like in this chase? Ugh. I can't even imagine. Oh like my God. it's crazy. And you probably felt a little safe because there were so many people. Right. And he clearly didn't have a gun or he would have used it at this point. I mean, just the release after this guy has been terrorizing Oh, totally. where you live. So one man finally manages to hit Ramirez with a metal pipe, knocking him to the ground and he's bleeding from the head on the ground. Um they basically beat him and yell at him until the police finally show up and kind of save him like who knows like one person i read something that he was going to go back and get a gun and shoot him he's like i'll fucking end it I'll end right. This right now but the police came unfortunately in this case uh so press also arrived cuz this had sort of become a story like there's a lot of footage you can see footage i think of this yes yeah. you can they yeah. showed it in the doc so um Still, no one could kind of believe that it was him. Like, it still was sort of shocking, but he was captured. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. on top of Big Give week cashback rates. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. So he's pretty resigned upon capture. Like, he's not as cocky as he once was. He puts his head on the table and starts banging on it with his hand in hums Night Prowler by ACDC, his signature song. Uh, he's basically in disbelief also that Satan didn't protect him because he truly believed that Satan was why he had gotten away with a lot of stupid mistakes he had made on other things. It was just like... Okay, Satan is helping me here. So it was like, where's my savior? He began begging the cops to give him a gun, saying that he'd take care of himself. He also mocked the police because the people caught him and not the police. He then asked the detective to shoot him, and then he just kind of clammed up and went silent. Salerno and Carrillo arrive at the Hollenbeck station shortly after Richard did in disbelief that they had finally captured this monster who had consumed every thought that they had had for the past few months when they introduced themselves to richard he said yeah i know who you are and then he started talking to salerno he's like hey you're the one who caught bianchi and Bu- bono so he started talking about the night um i'm sorry the hillside strangler case with him he then asked for a coke and seemed like he was going to confess everything he's like i'm just i'm just going to tell you everything you want but then of course he said he wanted a lawyer when Carrillo and Salerno were like well then we have nothing you know we're out of here they started to leave he said oh I'll talk to you but not about any crimes so he spoke to Carrillo in Spanish about his childhood and his abusive dad and even had this really freak out moment where Carrillo had asked him if the dad had ever sexually abused his sister Ruth and he started shaking and tremoring and like didn't answer, but had like a total um, meltdown about just the question. So who the hell knows what that means? He then clammed up again after that incident. He was transferred to the sheriff's department jail uh, and would be escorted there by Carrillo and Salerno. An angry mob was outside screaming, give him to us as they like pulled out. <laughs> it was serious. As they left, a woman got in a car and, and, pulled, and showed her tits. Uh, that was wild. <laughs> what, what was that? But like, where is she now? <laughs> I need
0: to know where this bitch is now because that was clearly one of his groupies, right? I mean,
1: that must have been one of his first groupies. Right. She's uh, an early one. I have, Well, Ramirez thought it was for him, but the cops thought it was like a thank you to them. So. Well, that wasn't clear enough. Uh, we don't she know. Have been more I like clear. how both of them were like, no, that was for me. It's <laughs> like, who cares? Now- Back in El Paso, the Ramirez family gathered in disbelief, some thinking it must be a mistake. Richie's dad, Julian, blamed marijuana. He was like, this is what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Julian buys reefer madness. Oh, yeah. Like hook, line, and sinker. I read that. I was just like, come on. Can we get past this, please? (laughs) Later, he got so drunk, he threatened to murder his wife and kill himself. So who, I mean... (laughs) That, Who
0: really has a yeah, problem? Yeah, as here. the
1: alcohol is worse. Rather than face the shame, like he, this did kill him eventually. Like he couldn't take this shame about Richard. Like it was so humiliating to him. It was decided that Ruth would be the one to go see Richie. She arrives. He begins to cry, and she's like, "No, se cobre. I practice that which means don't show your inner feelings, which was something their dad said to them growing up. Whoa. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's part of the problem. Yeah, <laughs> She told Richie to fight if he was innocent. He whined and he said he would never get a fair trial. He was just being scapegoated because he was Mexican-American. He just was like immediately playing the victim. Like I'm the victim here. Ugh. The weird thing was he really did have some kind of concern that his family didn't see him the way the rest of the world did which is kind of surprising to me but he he had it at that point like he wanted them to believe he was innocent he makes his first court appearance and he appears shy and quiet during this which led to his first fangirls i, I don't know about that woman on the car who showed her tits But this is where it started getting big. Women couldn't help but remark about how attractive he was. He quickly began to receive letters from these women as well as from Satanists and other freaks who thought of him as some sort of evil hero. Like, just that's, you know the type. Oh, yeah. (laughs) A 25-year-old named Doreen Leoy fell in love with his face and was outraged at his unfair treatment. She decided then and there that it was her duty to protect him from those who were trying to vilify him. Richard was emboldened by the support and he decided that during his next appearance, he would show a different side to the world and he would start taking control. Richard did not want a public defender and managed to actually get a meeting with famous um, attorney Melvin Belli, a San Francisco attorney who who repped a lot of famous people in big cases. He turned him down eventually. Richard then went with two inexperienced brothers named Danielle and Arturo Hernandez. Now at some hearings regarding his legal counsel, cause he had to have like a hearing to replace the uh, public defender he had. Um, he started acting out a bit more in these sessions of court which fueled the admiration of his females fan, female fans. He was also getting even more popular with the occult crowd by this kind of stuff. Zena Levey visited him in jail, made him an honorary member of the Church of Satan, and said that all of, all of the members were sending their blessings his way. I thought the Church of Satan was supposed to be like, we're not evil. I don't know. Zena LaVey is the one that looks like Taylor Swift, right? I think so. Yes. So she... Who the hell knows what she's doing? Cause she also did a lot of media appearances and stuff. Cause that famous picture of her is from like Sally, Sally or something. (laughs) Right. So maybe she was just trying to get some attention. Yeah, Cause you're right. As far as I know, it's like, no, we're not evil. We just, whatever. Now at the hearing, the judge approves these two new lawyers eventually. And Richard had something up his sleeve planned for the end of that session After his attorneys were approved, he stood up and defiantly raised his hand that had a pentagon drawn on it, as well pentagram. I'm sorry, pentagon drawn on it as well as a six six six. When he exited out of um, the courtroom that day, he yelled "Hail Satan!" and the courtroom went fucking nuts. This guy is such a
0: poser. I'm sorry,
1: he's a poser, and all of his fans are posers too. Like they seem like the most annoying people. Now he pleads not guilty after consistently telling everyone he would plead guilty since it was hopeless. So he does plead not guilty and his family and people who love him are happy about this. A date for preliminary trial, the preliminary trial was set. And this is when a lot of people, you know, would finally start hearing about the crimes in detail and a lot of the evidence against him. When the evidence is presented, all eyes are on Richard who would often cackle and laugh When horrible things were revealed, including when um, the woman, he stole the woman's eyes. Yeah. That segment, he like made a huge deal and made a huge cackle about it, which was obviously a fucking outrageous and awful thing to do. But it started getting this trial, like he wanted to get this kind of attention. Now, Doreen also, around this time, writes her first letter to the editor. This is what she starts doing. She starts writing these letters to the newspapers about his unfair treatment. This is his number one fan, girl. This is his number one fan. They haven't met or spoken yet. So she writes to the LA Daily News. Um, She writes a daily news story on... um, October six reported that the captors of the Night Stalker suspect Richard Ramirez, Manuel and Angela de la Torre—that's the man and his wife who was being carjacked. By the way, are tr- they're tired of the fuss of the story? That makes three of us. <laughs> <laughs> They feigned modesty of the so-called the feigned modesty of the so-called heroes of Hubbard Street is equally tiresome. Heroes indeed. According to one hero, Jamie Borgon, Bourge- the heroic Manu- Manuel Delator exclaimed upon getting Richard, get my gun, get my gun. I'll waste them right here. What makes Delator's brand of violence heroic while R- Ramirez's alleged violence is considered satanic? A lady. <laughs> if the man like if the man they chased him brutally had been an ordinary intruder and not the nice talker suspect, the so-called heroes of Hubbard Street might just as easily have been hauled away for assault and battery themselves. The Delators Tours have been lavished with praise, awards from the mayor, and scholarships to study English. While they and their neighbors die for reward money, it must be remembered that Ramirez has yet to be convicted of any crimes. While the minor players in this game may have had something to gain, Ramirez has lost something. His right to justice and a fair trial... <laughs> This lady needs to get a life. She's like the worst reply guy or something. Like, actually, (laughs) I get where you're coming from, but it's like some pedantic, like, whatever. If she's so proud of it, she didn't use her real last name. She signed it Doreen Lloyd from Burbank. Now, after a long preliminary trial, it was decided that there was enough evidence to proceed. Jury selection began on July 21st, 1988, on August 3rd, 1988, the Los Angeles Times reported that some jail employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which he intended to have smuggled in by one of his bitches, like one of his fans. Consequently, a metal detector is installed and they have intensive searches now of everyone who enters the courtroom. Did they check the pussy? <laughs> Seriously? Because that's I where I it. think they would hide it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now that's very similar to like Manson's trial where the girls were always like scheming to do shit. Jury selection took 6 months, which is a really long time. During this period, Richard, who was kind of in and out of being suicidal, um, the only way he got out of his depression by reading all of his fan letters that he was getting, his favorite was a Satanist named Eva, who told him she wanted to have sex with him over the bloodied bodies of his victims. Ugh. Okay. She's so 14. <laughs> Goth girl. <laughs> like, that is like insane. Like She's a poser to me. She be, she actually got to approve to visit him and she would tell him six stories about things she had done during sex and he was like riveted by her. This is someone who needs to go to therapy. Seriously. Now, a thing to know about Richard too is that he only had sex with people he paid. He never had like a relationship or a sexual relationship with someone he knew. Was that by choice? Uh... I think he had one thing when he was like younger, like some whatever that was nothing, but he only paid for sex. So he didn't know how to deal with all of this like genuine love and affection from women. Right. It just didn't happen. Right. So it was, it was extra sort of intoxicating to him, I think to get this female attention or, you know, attention from women. So he, his ego grows even more in, in what I guess in jail and the women are like lining up to go visit him in jail. It's not just Eva. Um these women are coming from all over. This always makes me so upset. It's like don't encourage them. This is such a fascinating topic phenomenon. to me or phenomenon. I'm gonna get more into it later, but during this period the jailkeepers or the guards had never seen anything like this because it just does not happen. All the women who went to see him had different reasons, but they each found uh, something in him. One of them said that he was attractive and cute and so dangerous. He's a turn on. Another said that he was the forbidden fruit. I think he's the most attractive man I've ever seen. Why
0: don't they just date a guy <laughs> who has a motorcycle?
1: <laughs> Another woman said he didn't do the things they were saying. No way. Uh, There's something in his eyes, like a little boy who needs help. I just wanted to reach out and embrace him. He's so sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Another woman said that she loved his smile and he's vulnerable and so sexy. Just look at his eyes. They're like an animals. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. (laughs) Like I, I, this is, this is. Where I need to know where these women are now. Do any of them have extreme embarrassment? Uh, They must. Because these are like full on names. I'm not even saying their names. One other woman, this was my favorite. She's like, he loves me. He told me so. He's so nice, gentle like a lamb. He talks so sweet. He's so funny. He signs his letters, yours cruelly. (laughs) (laughs) That's like... Like a parody the parody of me at like fourteen, like like signing something yours cruelly. It sounds like uh, the the narrator of the haunted mansion or something. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's so over the top now Doreen was shy and she didn't want to be just one of you know just one of the groupies she wanted to be something special she finally sends him all the letters to the editor that she had wrote defending Richard to Richard and he was so moved by how much she cared they finally met shortly after jury selection began and upon meeting they immediately declared their love for each other January 10th 1989 the trial begins every day at trial uh Doreen shows up with all the other groupies who she declares a bunch of street sluts. (laughs) (laughs) That's a quote. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's like so I'm not mad. Right. But she's like, I he he really loves me, but she hates these street sluts. She's saving her, her virginity for him, too, oh, by the way. She's no. still a virgin. Oh. So no. she's also helping him with things, including trying to find Ted Bundy's contact info because Richard wanted to be pen pals with him. Stop it. Yes. On Valentine's Day of that year, she suspects that an alternative juror named Cindy Hayden had sent Richard a cupcake. <gasps> Now Carrillo and Salerno had also noticed that that juror seemed to smile and make eyes at Richard a lot, but they didn't seem worried because they were pretty sure she would never actually get on the jury. They kept her eye on, their eye on her though, uh, just in case. Now Doreen was also the person who bought him the sunglasses that he would wear to court. Ugh, I the... can't believe they let him wear those. <laughs> well, the thing is, I thought it was disrespectful, like just to be a, to be a little bitch right but he actually did it because he was getting in trouble for dozing off in court <laughs> so that was a way he could shut his eyes so it was actually like a kind of dorkier reason i mean he still is an asshole these shades though kind of gave him even more of a rock star appeal to his fans it was like ooh, look at him like he's in sheep. he just fucking wears sunglasses during the <laughs> day <laughs> inside um he would turn towards his fans by the way uh, and look back at them, and that was always a very big moment for them. They would giggle and blow kisses to him. Ugh. These people are. are I'm awful. humiliated for it's these. So, women. I mean, I. This makes me feel about good about any other bad decision I've ever made about a man. Seriously, like it's like I'm just normal. I, this is psychotic.
0: I've made some very interesting choices in men over the yeah. years of my
1: life, but nothing like this. Yeah. Doreen would always just sit there telling herself she just wasn't like other girls (laughs) to say this was a tense trial is an understatement. Obviously the testimony and crimes are horrific and upsetting. There's also a lot of surviving victims going to the courtroom and testifying. So they had to sit there and tell what happened to them while this guy's fucking basically laughing at their testimony. And when they like point him out They ask, you know, they'll ask them usually like, is the man who did this sitting here today? And they would point at Richard. He'd basically laugh at these people. Um, He sort of um, played up this image and really heightened even more of his sort of ghoulish ways, including he'd have access to the crime scene photos and hang them in his jail. Gross. uh, and his fan girls were just disturbing to everyone in the courtroom because it was like, what world are you in? Right, like, right. This is uh, serious. The Hernandez brothers, by the way, are completely incompetent. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. These are
0: his lawyers. Yes.
1: Their whole strategy seems to be to delay things until a mistrial is called. Eventually, another lawyer is brought on uh, to help, and his name is Ray Clark. Another development, a juror was kicked off for having a connection to victim Whitney Bennett's dad. This alternative juror who had sent the cupcake looked really disappointed when she wasn't selected. Doreen saw her as her only real rival since she could actually save Richard if she got on the jury and she actively hoped that this this alternative juror would not get on uh, the jury. But Another juror was found to have a connection to Richard's first public defender, and he demanded that that juror be replaced. The judge had no choice but to pull another alt. This time, it was Cynthia Hayden's name who was pulled. I guess they just randomly pull names of the alternative jurors, so you don't know who's going to get picked no, next. No, Cynthia's the one who wanted to get in the cupcake. Yeah, yes. Uh, so she, at that point, looks like she won the lottery. She's also a terrible actress. The I'm sorry. The attorneys and Richard are like, you know, they're like, yes, she will never vote to. They like, no, this is like good. In fact, he wanted her desperately to get on the jury because he knew they had been like making eyes at each other, and it got pretty like weird. I I don't know why she didn't get kicked off. Yeah, but I guess there was nothing they could do technically. Well, they had they spent so long looking for the jury. Six yeah, months. and I guess you have to have a reason to. um kick them off so another sort of interesting bit of trivia at the time he is in the jail actor sean penn is sentenced to 32 days in the los angeles county jail for punching a photographer Um, so because he was a celebrity they put him in a protective custody and he was lodged in the cell right next to richard ramirez holy shit At the time, he is still married to Madonna, and she would come to visit Sean. She saw Ramirez as she stepped off the elevator. When Sean was brought to the visiting booth, the first thing she said was, who's that good-looking guy? Stop it. Sitting down, Sean said, that is the Night Stalker. I want to meet him. He gives me goosebumps, Madonna said. But yeah, I'd like to meet him, she joked. I don't think so, Sean said, laughing. During the course of Sean's day, Richard asked um Sean for his autograph. Sean wrote, "Dear Richard, it's impossible to be incarcerated and not feel a kinship with your fellow inmates. Well Richard, I've done the impossible. I feel absolutely no kinship with you. Sean Penn, Richard wrote back, "Dear Sean, stay in touch and hit him again. Richard Ramirez 666." Penn said that Ramirez masturbated excessively while in the uh. cell next to him. And he said he was like an animal in heat. He had pictures of his victims on the cell walls and he kept them up with toothpaste.
0: Ew. It's so
1: gross. Ugh, I don't want to be in jail ever, but I also don't want to be next to someone masturbating all the time. <laughs> on July 26th, the jury enters the, de- the deliberation room. On August 14th, the trial is interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary did not arrive at the courtroom Later that day, she is found shot to death in her apartment. The jury at this point is terrified, wondering if Ramirez had somehow directed this from inside his prison cell um, or whether or not he could reach other jurors. It is ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for her death as she was shot and killed by her boyfriend, who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel Ironically, the argument that led to the murder-suicide was about Ramirez because Phyllis had started saying to her boyfriend that she felt bad Ramirez had such bad lawyers. <gasps> and the boyfriend was like, no, he's a, he needs to be put down. So that's what triggered their argument that led Whoa. to this horrific crime. The alternate who replaced Singletary was too frightened to return to her home. So this really upset the jury into this state of panic, even though they found out it was... You know, not Richard, because he was just so scary that they like lived in terror of him. Still, on September twentieth, nineteen eighty nine, Ramirez was convicted of all forty six charges. Doreen ran out crying. I don't know why. I thought that would be really funny to say. <laughs> <laughs> After jurors were dismissed, the prosecutor Phil Halpin thanked Cynthia Hayden for her verdict and told her not to speak to the defense. She would later say that correcting this injustice would be her life's work. So she convicted him, but she regretted it almost immediately after uh, the stuff ended. And she would go on to become a private detective in order to help Richard get out on appeals. What? Yeah. Now, next up was deciding his punishment. They had to decide whether it was life or death penalty. At some point, because they had to vote on or make a decision on every case, right? right? And this is why the trial took so long, too, is they, they had a lot of cases. I mean, the OJ trial took forever, and it was one murder case. Right? This was like multiple murder cases all being tried together. So at some point, while they're passing around this like yes, no on every case... And they're all, yes, Uh, they start doing like a hangman noose and drawing little things instead. And she draws a tombstone with a heart on it. So that's like for the death penalty, but she put a heart on it. During the penalty phase on November 7th, 1989, he is sentenced to die in the gas chamber. Cynthia mouth, I'm sorry to him when it got handed down and he was uh, fuming at the jury and giving them all sort of awful looks. Now he does get to speak after he gets sentenced, and he he does like he does the old "you don't understand me, you are not capable, I am beyond your experience, I am beyond good and evil, I will be avenged." And he goes into how everyone is just as evil as he is, how the government kills in the name of God and country all the time, etc. Uh, he the judge then sort of clears his throat after this long tirade. Of a speech and sentences him to death and to San Quentin. He also states before after he gets the death sentence and on his way out, he says to reporters on the scene, big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you at Disneyland. Jesus. <laughs> no idea what that means. I guess did, were those commercials out already? Like <laughs> with the Super Bowl people. <laughs> uh, the trial. Cost $1.8 million, which is like almost $4 million in our day, and was the most expensive in the history of California until the O.J. Simpson murder case in 1994. Now, as I mentioned, Cindy is racked with guilt about what she has done to Richard she begins a correspondence with him and eventually meets him saying she wanted him inside of her like during the meeting. It's so gross. That he was the reason she left her husband because she had left her husband and moved to California at some point.
0: Oh, I'd be so embarrassed. And that he
1: was her destiny. So she started making her whole life as leading to this moment kind of thing. Uh, one sort of interesting thing that's sort of a good thing that came out of this case that I just, as a side note... Um, the son of Salerno, the lead detective, his name is Mike. He ends up meeting the, one of the victims, Whitney Bennett, through all of this, and they get married. Oh, wow. So they like fall in love uh, at some point, and it's like a good relationship. So just like a weird thing. Now, Cindy starts visiting Richard every chance she can. She comes on weekends because he's now in San Francisco, San Quentin is in the Bay Area. In like a really nice location right on the bay. But she's, you know, her and Doreen are still in LA. So they start driving to San Francisco. Um, the two women began seeing each other at the prison because they're both going to visit Richard. Doreen feels Cindy is a low-down hypocritical bitch. <laughs> she hates Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> because she voted it. Yeah, she voted to like convict him and kill him. Um she's like, he could have, she could have hung the the <laughs> the jury. Whenever Doreen sees Cindy at the jail, she would narrow her eyes and like they would have like these real like kind of standoffs. Like she just wanted to show her utter disdain uh, for her. This is
0: so embarrassing. It's so
1: embarrassing. She also asked Richard why the hell he was letting that Benedict Arnold visit. And he said, oh no, no, it's good. She might be able to help me if I, when I'm, cause you know, he has a million appeals coming up. After a few months of Cindy driving all the way to San Francisco, she begins to think of moving permanently up north so she could be near Richard. She is in love with him and has pictures of him on her night table. Uh, she tells her parents about her relationship with Richard. She actually brings her parents to meet Richard in San Quentin. Ugh. At some point you have to be like, okay, I unconditionally love you, but that's like, no, that's a no.
0: Like, do, don't Do you sit down with your child after that and tell them, This is, this is not appropriate.
1: No, she like, she's like, ma, she like introduced them. She's like, this is Richard. I know you've heard some bad things about him, (laughs) but he's got a lot of good points too. It's like, honey, like (laughs) nothing new is happening here. Women have been doing this, but this is like. Next level uh, bad choice. I mean, we've definitely talked about the
0: lengths that some of these women who fall in love with serial killers will go to, like in our Hillside
1: Stranglers episode. Or the Danny Rollins bitch. Yes, 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 yes. Now, she makes appearances on Donahue and Geraldo. I feel like this happened a lot in like the 80s and 90s. Honestly, this is why I miss these old school talk
0: shows. There were so many. Well, (laughs) they were such, they were so over the top. Like you just got some of the most trash people ever on these shows, like Donahue. Because they all
1: needed to like outdo the other person, right? Like I miss Donahue. All of these shows were so good. Now, some of the groupies that visited Richard in Los Angeles were also going to San Francisco and he got new ones in San Francisco. So Doreen was like very unhappy at this point. She would complain to him all the time that they were taking her time away from, you know, spending time with Richard Uh, some of the things that would happen is like they would all show up, but no one would know who got to go in. So they'd sit there and wait all day and sometimes not even get called in to visit with him. And then
0: they'd see someone walking out and be like, you bitch.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's just like custom made for like cat fights or something. Uh, Cindy, unlike Doreen didn't mind his other visitors as long as none of them talked to her. But there was one woman Cindy and Doreen both came to hate together, and she was known as the Bimbo. (laughs) (laughs) She started getting aggressive with both Cindy and Doreen. Now, the Bimbo is described in the book as a heavy set, well bit well-built, belligerent blonde with frizzy hair and a big nose who began to challenge Cindy and Doreen when she ran into them at the jail. He's mine. Stay away from him or I'll break your face, she would say to them. (laughs) Cindy would stand up to her, telling her to fuck off, but Doreen was like the more shy one. She did not have that combative nature, and she would take the bimbo's threats, taunts, and um, admonitions seriously like she was like totally like afraid of her the bimbo began re- regularly stepping on doreen's toes and calling her dog green <laughs> wait what she called her dog green dog like, green? like, like a doreen? dog like a dog oh like a doreen but she's a dog <laughs> you're a dog Damn, bimbo. It got to the point where Dorian began asking the jail guards to walk her to her car <laughs> because she was afraid of the bimbo. <laughs> I need a show. I will watch a movie about the bimbo. I, 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 <laughs> will, t- I will watch a TV
0: show about... Rival bitches who are in love with the same
1: serial killer. Isn't this incredible? And like the bimbo comes in and they have to join forces. Oh, and like that's the act three. That's a movie. <laughs> that is a good movie. So, so Cindy does eventually move up to San Francisco to be near Richard. So she starts visiting him more and she finally manages to get some alone time with Richard because they do this whole elaborate thing with one of his attorneys. They let him have a conjugal. It's not a conjugal, but they finally get to touch. So he, she like grabs him the minute the attorney leaves for a few seconds, I think, to go to the bathroom. But right. it's like a planned thing. She gives him a deep kiss and he gropes her. She said that she nearly passed out. She was so excited. I thought she passed out because of his breath. <laughs> Seriously. Because I heard he had bad breath. He does have bad breath. He famously has bad breath. She goes... He gets uh, featured on a Current Affair, another great old time show. Oh my god, <laughs> that was crazy! <laughs> and it's called the Death Row Romeo. The segment on him because he's getting so much action at San Quentin. He Who knew? might
0: be. I feel like more than Ted Bundy, I feel like Richard Ramirez got had so many groupies.
1: No one has more. More. than I Manson. defy any. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's Ramirez. Well, Manson had his groupies pre everything, yes. yes. So I think after the fact, because Ramirez was not getting anything that right. he didn't buy before, right. now he's getting shit ton of pussy. <laughs> like theoretically, <laughs> I mean, who knows? These women are also all talk. Like very few of them actually go in with him. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I think there is for some of these women, they just want to write these letters and stuff like that, but they would never actually probably do anything. Yeah. I'll get into this a bit later. Now on October 3rd, 1996, he marries Doreen in San Quentin. Uh, She is still devoted to him. She does end up being his main bitch. I guess if you can, if you count wife uh, (laughs) as being the highest level For many years before his death, she states that she would commit suicide when Richard is executed. That's her plan. But she finally reaches her breaking point in 2009 when Richard becomes connected to a cold case. Does
0: Doreen have any girlfriends who can just sit her down? Honestly, I read
1: this interview with her sister who I think it's actually her twin sister. Oh my God. Can you imagine your twin sister pulling this shit? So embarrassing. Uh, And she's like, we don't talk about... Like, she... The sister is, like, humiliated yeah. by Doreen's behavior. And she just, like, I don't even want to be connected to it. Like... If that was my twin sister,
0: I'd be like, whatever your hair looks like, I'm doing the opposite. Yeah. I'm getting some cosmetic surgery. Absolutely.
1: So... Back in 1984, April 10th, a nine-year-old girl named Mei Lung and her brother were playing in an apartment building in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. The little girl wandered off to a building's basement looking for a lost daughter. uh, I'm sorry, dollar. About 30 minutes later, her eight-year-old brother stumbles on a horrific scene. He sees his sister's lifeless body hanging from a pipe. She had been stabbed and strangled. Um, The detective on the case at the time said, if you can picture Christ on the cross, that's the way she looked. Her head was drooped and her chin down. It was a sad sight to see. That case got to me. Now, she was also sexually assaulted. Police uh, had zero evidence. They could never identify as a suspect. The case went cold. In 2009, they had some DNA evidence that they had found on the scene, and they positively identified it as belonging to Richard Ramirez. Wow. So... He was actually, well, he's her first, the first known murder victim now, replacing Jenny Vincal, the 79-year-old, uh, in Glassell Park. So it is believed that he was up in San Francisco. Like, he was known to be there before his L.A. killing spree. That he was up there. He was looking around a basement for something to steal when they just stumbled in there playing and Ugh. he came across her. This is so sad. Really sad. So... That's what led to Doreen actually leaving him. That was the final straw. That was her final straw uh, because this DNA was DNA confirmed. And in her mind, he never did the other things. He was innocent of those crimes, uh, according to her. So I guess she couldn't deny DNA evidence. I mean, who the hell knows what really happened? Maybe she was just like, this will make me look like a good person. I want to leave him anyway. Like maybe she didn't want in, in anymore. Right. But who the hell knows? Now... Um, A psychiatrist named Michael H. Stone described Ramirez as a made psychopath as opposed to a born psychopath. And we kind of discussed his childhood. It definitely seemed like he had a lot of shit go down. Um, He stated that Ramirez, like being knocked unconscious, I think he had a few times that that happened, was um, what caused his temporal lobe epilepsy, aggressive nature, and hypersexuality. Uh, That's his theory. Now... Ramirez does get diagnosed with lymphoma. He eventually dies of that in Marin General in Greenbrae. That's where I was born. At June 7th, 2013. Uh, he had also been affected by chronic substance abuse. He had hepatitis C, which is uh, related to that usually. By the time of his death, he was also supposedly re-engaged to a woman named Christine Lee, who described herself as a 23 writer. Lot 23 writer? 23-year-old writer. Now she says that a lot of people on the internet are like, "That's not possible." She, they don't believe that she was twenty three. I don't know what's <laughs> going on. The internet doesn't buy it. Christina Lee, she has two kids. Like I don't know what she's doing with Richard Ramirez. It doesn't matter what her age is. Uh, he had been on death row for twenty three years. He was um, fifty three at the time. So. He could have been in his seventies before his execution was ever carried out because the California appeals process is very long. So I just wanted to mention that I did find that there is something called high And that is what people use to describe women like this who go after serial killers or like that level, not just bad guys. Um, and it's, not exactly a um, psychiatric diagnosis. It's like a personality thing or something that can happen. So a lot of these women they're it's not just the psychopathic manipulative charm that these guys have that bring them in. They also are prone to wanting to see vulnerable sides in people and nurture that in them, a bad guy. Um, some people do just want their 15 minutes of fame. And another theory is that sometimes um, someone behind bars can seem like the perfect man. Cause it's, it's like someone with intimacy issues doesn't have to deal with like a real relationship or even have sex with them they, if if they have some kind of trauma related to sex in their past right like that's another relief for them to be with someone in jail. It's a very limited relationship, yes, so it's definitely under the category of like a sexual disorder, uh, according to this thing I found on the internet, <laughs> so who knows how accurate it is, but it kind of all makes sense. I mean, I could see it being something that certain women want and probably have been dealing with some kind of trauma that makes them scared and in a weird way to be with someone, this is like a safer option. I don't know. But you also do have to be kind of demented. Well, there's one thing to pick a guy who's in prison for life. That would make more sense to me than the ones who actively go after guys who are like in and out all the time. And they're going to actually spend time with them or something. No, I'm saying going after a serial killer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no. That's demented. It's like everything that women might have in their past at a very low level. Like I've definitely been like, oh, I can fix them or something like that. But not to the level where I'd want to fix a serial killer ever. Even if I could, I would be like, fuck that (laughs) shit. Like it's not like someone who doesn't text back or something. Right. uh, So yeah, it's such an interesting phenomenon to me. I know. I've always, I've been fascinated by it for so long. I can't like, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah.
0: And trust me, I know making bad choices. Yeah, me too. This is just
1: another level. Yeah, I just wouldn't be interested. Yeah. Also, he's not that hot. (laughs) (laughs) look, he's he's part of the category of,
0: is he actually hot or is he hot for a serial killer?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe, and not that I ever think about it ranking them too much. Uh, no, no. But, like, it is something that people do, like, you know, they think about Ted Bundy or something like that, but it's like, he's so bad and awful and creepy. It's just hard. He can to,
0: never be hot. Right. It's, it's like, I can't even let myself go there yeah. to think of him as attractive because he's so evil. Yes. So yeah,
1: that's the end of that. Yeah. I, I, that is interesting. I don't know who else I would, I'd be curious, like what other killers had fans like this outside of Bundy and Ramirez? I don't really think many did. Cause I don't think Manson gained any new fans. i don't recall, and I know a lot about that case. I don't recall that happening. I feel like some of the um, lower level girls got higher, right? Uh, and that's about it. But yeah, like, no. did Dahmer have any fanboys? No, no, no. He didn't have any fanboys. I don't remember anything. No, I can't. I honestly can't think of any. I'll look into it and talk about it on the mini. Maybe, yeah, we'll see who else had fan girls fanboys. Boys. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Very interesting, Desi. Bye.